I appreciate you being here. This is the last of five of these lessons on what I've titled here the art of dying. And as I've said before, I think there is an art to dying. Now, we all will die, whether we do it correctly or not, is a choice that we have to make. And we can learn from people about how to die in the best possible way that we can. There's an Irish proverb that uh, live well but die better. Die better. And I do think there is some creative, imaginative ways that we can approach our own finitude, our mortality, especially when those days are under a lot of stress and duress and pain. And uh, those, as you well know, I, every one of you in some way or another has gone through an experience like this. And you think, well, what can we rely on? How can I manage? How can I believe in anything? How can I muster up enough strength to go through something like this? And what I've tried to do throughout this these lessons here is to learn a few things from various people and uh, we've looked at scripture we've looked at some fictional characters we've looked at some saints and what I want to look at today are three authors that uh, two are alive though they are still sick uh, but one has died and they've written books about their experience when they were diagnosed with cancer and how they related to it and also how they approach their, their pending death. But before I go into this, let's pray. O oh God, in whom we give all our hope and trust, we appeal to Thee to always be the author of our life, even though we may be dying, that we are convinced that it is in Thee that we not only live and move and have our being, but will reside for eternity. I pray your, plea, your peace and your blessings be upon us. And this I offer in thy name. Amen. All right, just to review a little of what I have been trying to say, I'm going to fast forward through some of these. I, once again, still love this painting as a good sort of symbol of what it means to the, have the art of dying. As you know, that's the famous saint, St. Jerome, as he's translating into the Vulgate, the Latin and Greek, and, I mean the uh, Hebrew and Greek into Latin. And he's pondering his own finitude his limited days, and hence the skull there is a symbol of him having to learn his own mortality. Uh, don't look at this, it'll give you a headache as I go through this so quickly. <clears throat> I'm going back up, sorry. Yep, whoops, I went too fast. Shut your eyes again. Well, <laughs> I, I should be more technologically savvy about this, but I'm not. Here it is. Okay, I've chosen three books. Uh, it's not all, in fact, I kind of got interested in this a number of years ago, reading autobiographies that people have written, men and women, about their experience of dying. And I've just chosen three, not that these are the best, I think, but there are three from which I think we can learn quite a bit. And the first we're going to look at is by a man named David Horwitz. I suspect that's a name some of you are familiar with. Uh, Victor, you ever read or heard much of David Horwitz? Um, he's a very interesting man. Uh, he uh, 
uh, let's see, he was born in 1939, and in September 2001, he was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And in some ways, he was at the height of his career when this happened. Uh, his parents were educators, uh, but they were thoroughly convinced Marxist and were members of the American Communist Society. Uh, they were sort of sympathizers of Joseph Stalin. And he was raised in what you know, he called a radical leftist environment. He went off to college, remained that way, and he was a champion and a writer and a protester for the radical left, for communism. And then he had some experiences in which all that was kind of debunked for him. And now he has his sort of what he calls radical right He's going all the way over Haverhill uh, into the other side. He's very critical of social liberalism, but all that's beside the point. Uh, he's an incredibly literate, articulate man, a very forceful person. Uh, he makes his opinions known, uh, and uh, he is in some ways a very provocative person. But the reason why I'm saying all that is that he, he is a man of ideas, he's a man of convictions, he has a man of great sort of passion to him and he was at the crest of his, his career and then all of a sudden he got this diagnosis of prostate cancer. And uh, he uh, was having to face probably for the first time in his life that indeed uh, he, he could possibly die from this. Well, I read this book and uh, he, he uh, has tremendous insights in this, but it's representative of a certain viewpoint that I just offer for you to consider. He's not a theist, he's not even a, a Christian for sure, and he, though, was always sort of sympathetic and interested in some very significant Christian writers. The one probably the most in his life was a guy named Pascal. If you're familiar with Pascal, maybe that's a name you've run across. Uh, Pascal was a brilliant scientist, uh, for one thing. Uh, computer language, by the way, is named after him. But he was also a very passionate believer, sort of provocative thinker in his own way. And uh, Pascal, one of his most famous lines is that the heart has its reasons of which the mind knows not of. The heart has its reasons of which the mind knows not of. And he was a scientist. And he said that there's a basic sort of intuition about our lives that we cannot put into scientific terms. And those intuitions that we have motivate us, compel us, they are the ones that really define us, and that's how we find God. We don't find God through necessary rational categories, we find God through the heart. And so Pascal, who had this dramatic conversion experience, one night he was riding a carriage across the River Seine in Paris, and a storm broke, off, uh, break, broke out, and it almost killed him, and he swore then that he would be a different person. And when he died, he had a coat, and his, in his favorite coat, there was a little message sewn in the inside of his lapel, fire, 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 not the God of the philosophers, but the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Horowitz was captivated by that approach to life, that is living with this kind of intuitive connection, finding something to which you can be passionately committed. You can kind of see that in his family life, and how he sort of flipped from one sort of big cause to another cause, but this was driving him all of his life, and all of a sudden he gets this, this cancer. He doesn't know what he's going to do about it, and he's afraid. And he goes to a number of, of uh, hospitals and physicians, and um, he learns a lot about how to handle and approach this, but one particular uh, very famous 
uh, oncologist who specialized in prostate cancer named Walsh wrote a book called A Guide for Surviving Prostate Cancer. Uh, maybe it's a book that some of you have run across. But he says that there are three reasons for surgery in prostate cancer. One, uh, to get rid of the tumor, uh, to get rid of it. Uh, secondly, to, to help the, the urination process. And thirdly, to keep your male potency, to keep your male potency. And what he was saying is that most men are more worried about the third than the first and the second. Now, that sounds comical, and I have to kind of halfway laugh myself. But there is something very serious about that for a man to lose potency, which women, you know, in their own way, struggle with breast cancer. That is, it, something is coming to an end here pretty dramatically in my life. When you realize that because of this disease that you have, you will no longer be the man that you weren't that you were, was at one time, you come to grips that, well, I am mortal. I have to put a conclusion to this aspect of my life. And here is a very robust, intellectual, domineering person having this kind of message told him that you are now having to face something that may put an end to all that which you thought was great about yourself. Had, I put up here right underneath the name and the top of the book here a quote from him. I don't have the faith of Pascal, but I know his feelings. That is, he has this great feel, this, this thirst, this quest for God. He just cannot find God, though. And in this, he always has a degree of sort of pessimism in his life. And in the book, uh, it permeates through all this that because though he seeks God, he cannot find God. His heart yearns for God, but he cannot find some settlement with that ultimate quest. Uh, he has this high degree of kind of frustration in his own life about that. Well, uh, he talks about uh, some of this has to do with the influence of his parents on him and his early days in what he called the radical left, that you come up with a final solution to everything. And Marxism does promise a final solution to everything. Everybody is basically the same. You know, Marxism divides the world up between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. And everything is very clearly sort of seen as this ultimate process towards a classless society. Hence, all the differences among us, class divisions and so on, can be eliminated, removed, and the injustices that follow from that because of this Marxist promise. But in this realization that he was going to die, that he was now facing something that would eliminate any possibility of an answer to his life, he became more and more convinced that what we have to do is to respect the differences that we experience in life, not looking for that which we all have in common, but what makes us uniquely different from one another. I'm going to read a quote here. In the realm of the spirit, it is easier to slide a mile back than to advance a single step. The lesson I had learned through all my trials was to note and never forget that some have fallen further than others and will not come back. To my own children, I would say, do not take the sympathy for others for granted. Do not presume they will respond as you do or that they share your human compassion. 
to act without caution on some on such assumptions is to invite consequences as fear I mean as severe as death the lack of respect for immovable difference is the cause of endless human grief and is why my father's dreams have failed and he carries on with that kind of theme through the rest of the book and I think sort of the wisdom that is to be learned from him. Of course, we have more to offer than what Horowitz wants to himself to own, is that in facing our death, we realize we're not the center of the universe anymore. That it's not all rotating around us. That we, in a way, what we thought we had control of, we are not in control of. Something has come into our life and is slowly or rapidly taking away that we are the center, at least what we thought was our universe. There is wisdom in admitting that. There is wisdom in recognizing that there is a difference now that I have to come to peace with. It's not all going to work out according to a plan. Now, like I said, I don't think we obviously have to be as pessimistic as he is. Obviously, we believe because of what this week represents, the Holy Week, starting today in Palm Sunday and culminating next Sunday with the great claim that he has risen, that there is a life after death. How we envision that, I think, is difficult at times. We do have that hope for that. We have the reality of Christ's resurrected state to tell us that that is indeed true. We have the promise that it is something for us. But all that is true, but it still doesn't take away, I think, part of the wisdom that Horowitz had to come to grips with. And that is, ultimately, I am not in control of these things. Somebody else is in control of this. And it takes wisdom to admit the fact that in a way I am small in comparison to the great plan that God has. Before I leave that, uh, the other two I have, I think, I have sort of interesting contributions but quite different than Horowitz. Does anybody have a comment about that? Anybody want to make an observation about that? Did you say he, is he dead or is he dead? No, he is still alive. That's right. His, uh, his treatments uh, succeeded, and he, he is surviving it. Uh, he, uh, I'm not for sure if he's a happy man, by the way. I'm not for sure. He does mention, though, and it's his fourth marriage. His first marriage, his first wife died. They had, I think, three or four children. And the other two didn't work out very long, and then he remarried. Her name is April. And he mentions her a number of times in the book as, in a sense, a gift from a God that he doesn't really know that she brings this sort of unconditional grace into his life. And she, I think, is a believer, because she has, he quotes this from her on a number of times, has told him that I am preparing to meet you after you die. He cannot quite get his mind around that idea. But she has introduced this notion of grace in his life. And even says how blessed he is to be in his company, I mean, in her company. Uh, that leads to a point that I'm, hold on one second, that uh, I, I'll say with these other two how important the role of family is for people as they approach their death. Yeah. Yes? Yes, I was uh, thinking this man would certainly enjoy reading the book that recently came out by Franz DeWall entitled Bold No Bold and the Atheist. Huh. Talks about it's already in our DNA from evolution that we are moral and we are ethical and that's from the bottom up, not top down. 
Huh. And, and that, of course, that bono vote is uh, of the chimpanzee family that they now science believes is our distant relative. And he watches them all day. All right. Observe in Atlanta, Georgia, and see them doing altruistic things all for right. each other. And this man would really like that. Yeah. Well, at the end of time, I think there's something to be learned from that. And once again, the perspective that I think I get out of this towards this art of dying is that when we face our mortality, one of the things that we have to give up is that we are actually the center of the universe. That we are, have to realize that we're not in control, that there's something bigger than ourselves here. Now that is so hard to do, isn't it? So hard to give up control. Look how so much of our lives is designed in gaining control in big and also very small ways. We want to have control over our lives. I mean, I'm in the education business. One of the promises that we give to college students is that you get a degree from Sanford and you'll be smart and you can get a job and you can be in control and you can mingle with the people with whom you want to mingle. Well, all this is a concept that we can be in control. But, and you know this from your own experience, that when people are faced with it, that is one of the major hurdles to overcome. I'm not in control. Something has taken me over. And some people can become so discombobulated and fearful and dreadful because of that, they can't gain any wisdom. Well, Harwaltz, he gained a sense of wisdom by just letting that go, accepting the fact that the universe no longer, at least in his own mind, rotated around him. Now, the next book I want to talk about is uh, from a man named Christian Wyman or Women. It's called The Bright Abyss, <coughs> Meditation of a Modern Believer. He was born in, a, as he says, a, a dusty town in West Texas in 1966, raised in a Southern Baptist home. He left his home and went to William and Lee University and got a degree, I believe it was in English, and eventually gets a degree, a master's in economics at Prague, and becomes a very, very successful poet. In fact, one could say that perhaps he was one of the most influential poets in all of the country because he was the editor of one of the most prestigious journals in poetry called Poetry uh, from 2003 up until 2013. Well, uh, one day uh, he uh, felt ill and uh, went to the doctor and found out that he had even though in the book he never t says exactly what the cancer is, but that it was a pernicious form that had spread throughout most of his body and that uh, it was, though eventually it would be obviously lethal for him, yet uh, there was a means to hopefully try to treat it. And so he started this process of treating this cancer now that had come into his life. Now, he's, he's a man of words, as a poet is, has a very sharp mind. He approaches his experience and his understanding of the world and his understanding of God in a very poetic way. And so the way that he responded to staring at the skull of his life, that is, the mortality that was waiting him, he goes to poetry to try to do that. And some of the best poems I've ever read about death uh, are in this book, not only from very famous poets like George Herbert and uh, Mansley uh, and uh, John Donne, but also some that he wrote about his own mortality. Well, one of the points that uh, Wyman brings up in the book 
is that when a person hears that they may die because of a disease that they can no longer treat or care or, or eliminate, they look at the world differently. And the way he looked at it was instead of trying to find some sort of escape out of the pain that he was in, the fear that he was living with, to some sense of tranquility in a supernatural realm, he worked as hard as he could to try to find God in the specifics, the particulars, the ordinary of his life. That he wanted to affirm the fact that his life was contingent. Rather than trying to find something permanent in him to which he could sort of go into to give him some solace as he was struggling with his uh, pending death, he sought to affirm the contingencies of his life. And he's a believer. It was in that effort, that is, not to run away from the fact that he was now a sick man, possibly dying, not to deny the fact that he was mortal, but to accept the fact that he was temporal and contingent, he felt that he found a deeper way to find God in his life. He mentions how he went to a lot of um, mystics, Christian mystics, who talk about how God is found in all the sort of ordinary, mundane affairs of our lives, that the mystic develops a capability of seeing the world a certain way. Like I'm nearsighted and I take off my glasses and you're pretty blurry. The farther you go away, the farther you are from me, the harder it is for me to see. But I put on my bifocal glasses and I can see you pretty well. Well, the mystic sees things that's there that the ordinary person doesn't see because of our plans, because of our routine, because of our goals, our own interests and worries and concerns. We miss a realm of God's presence in our life because we're not looking for it. And what he wanted to do, facing his mortality, hearing that he now has a cancer that could possibly kill him, he wanted to find God in that experience. And so he develops this sort of mysticism and writes about it in his very, very sophisticated poetic ways to describe this. And I'm going to read a few of the things that he says here. One of his favorite po poets in the book, uh, even though later on I read an interview about him and he doesn't say that he really reads George Herbert very much, but he has a poem here from George Herbert. Uh, it's called The Pulley. When God at first made man, having a glass of blessing standing by, let us, said he, pour on him all we can. Let the world's riches, which dispersed lie, contract into a span. So, strength first made a way, then beauty flowed, then wisdom, honor, pleasure. When almost all was out, God made a stay, perceiving that, alone of all his treasures, treasure, rest in the bottom lay. For if I should, said he, bestow this jewel upon my creature, he would adore my gifts instead of me, and rest in nature, not the God of nature, so both should losers be. Yet let him keep the rest, but keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary, that at last if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. You know, like all good poems, you've got to think about it a long time and read it probably you know, ten times to get something out of that. But the point that Wyman sees from this 
is that when Herbert says, may toss him to my breast, that is, God has put in us a weariness, not just a richness, but a weariness to make us aware that we are not our own answers, that I don't have the solution to my life or the mystery of life or other people's life within me. I grow weary of that, and it draws me and drives me towards God to find the answers in God. And he wanted to accept, that is Wyman, the fact that he was not happy with what was going on. He was not going to find and look for superficial glib answers. In fact, many people would come up to him, as often happens, and all this is done sincerely with goodwill, to talk about the glories of heaven, the, you know, the, the, the great serenity that he would have when he finally goes into heaven. He found all that a distraction, though. In fact, he's pretty critical of that kind of talk, that talk about heaven. If we talk about heaven that does not, I mean, excuse me, in talking about heaven, he is afraid that we then quit looking for God in our lives today. And so he didn't want that. And so he wanted to affirm the fact that he had no answers. All he had was an experience with God. He had no solution to why he was now a dying man. Uh, near the end of his life, I mean, excuse me, no, he does not, near the end of the book, sorry, um, he makes this claim. We are, each of us, every single one of us, meant to be a lens for truths that we ourselves cannot see. We are, each of us, every single one of us, meant to be a lens for truths that we ourselves cannot see. That is, through our lives, somebody also must be able to experience God. He looked for God in the mundane, the contingent, the things that, that now frightened him. He wanted to be able to experience God in all of this that he was now facing. And one of the goals that he learned, and that which he is recommending us to learn, because he writes this book about that, is that our lives should also be a lens that when people look at me, like these glasses of mine, do they see better reality now in light of what they see in me? And he thinks as a Christian that's one of the greatest things that we can do, to be a lens of the presence of God in the ordinary, especially in those times in which we are facing our mortality, so that people can better see God because of what we go through. But it's not because you deny it. It's not because you look for some sort of, like I said, tranquil, soulless, serene state someplace else, but that you face it and you own it. Well, his treatments were successful, and his cancer went into remission. He now teaches at Yale Divinity School. The last book, called Chasing Daylight, How My Forthcoming Death Transformed My Life, by Eugene O'Kelly is, though, about a man who succumbed to his disease, and he died. He was diagnosed uh, in, uh, let's see, May, I believe it was, and then died in the following September. Uh, died in 2005. He died of a brain tumor. He uh, is, was a very successful man, uh, very prominent. He was the chairman and CEO of KPMG which is one of the largest accounting firms maybe in the whole world. And so he had a very prominent position. He's a hardworking man, 
very disciplined, had a plan and a program for everything that he did. He had to carry that much responsibility. Uh, he was a very faithful family man and a faithful churchman as well. And one day, uh, his wife looked at him. Her name is Corinne, and she writes the final chapter of this book, by the way, after he has already died. And notices that I think it's the right part of his face is starting to droop. And he had a couple of business trips planned. He had to go to China and said that he would look into it a little later. Well, in several weeks, he does have an appointment, and one thing leads to the next. And he's diagnosed with a very advanced form of a brain tumor, brain cancer. And the doctor said, there's a possibility of treating this, but you need to be ready. You need to prepare yourself because you could possibly die from this. Well, uh, he said at that point that uh, he came up with three things in mind. One, he was going to resign his job. He did that. Two, they were going to come up with a medical uh, plan on how to treat this and it would be between chemotherapy and radiation therapy. They decided against chemotherapy because it was so advanced, but he also realized that uh, it would so sicken him and innervate him that he wouldn't have enough energy and strength to carry on in any way. It might prolong his life several months, but his energy would be sapped from him and he wouldn't be able to carry on with his third plan. And that was, uh, to do what he called unwind his life. Unwind his life. And I'll come to that and just admit what he meant and how he went about doing that. But they chose radiation therapy. And, and I've known a few people who've gone through this. In fact, I have a good friend right now going through radiation uh, therapy with a brain cancer. And, you know, there would be a little bit of success and things would sort of stall. Then all of a sudden the tumor would come back. And that's what was happening with him. Well, um, one of the things that he felt like he had to do was to face his death and his mortality in the most meaningful way that he could. And so what he wanted to do was strengthen his faith and to strengthen his family ties. He had a grown daughter and he had a teenage daughter. And he decided to spend as much time with them. They had a house in New York, but his grown daughter lived in San Francisco. And so they made plans constantly to try to be with one another. Uh, I think maybe several weeks before he dies, they spent a long week on Lake Tahoe with all his family, taking boat rides on Lake Tahoe, which I've done. It's a magnificent thing to do. It, there's something very comforting of being in water. But he uh, was advised, uh, mainly by his wife, that he ought to develop what's called uh, centering prayer or what can also be called centering consciousness. Have you ever heard of it, centering prayer? It is a ancient, uh, highly sophisticated, developed form of meditation in which you, through practices, uh, learn to concentrate deep within you and to dwell primarily on consciousness, not on things itself, but just on your awareness of God. And that's called centering prayer. And that's what he felt like he needed to do. He had been an incredibly busy person, and that had made him very successful, very fulfilled in his life. But now his energy is taken away, his future is taken away, and how is he going to approach that? For many people, 
that would so terrify them that they were now totally out of control of their life. They would live each day as a panic. But he did not want to do that. He didn't want to live each day in a panic state. He wanted to affirm, to own, and grasp each day as, most, as meaningfully as he could. So he develops this sense of centering consciousness. In fact, he even says in the book that the greatest virtue that a person can develop is consciousness. Interesting that he would say that. And that is a sense of awareness of God's presence in your life. Uh, often in the, the programs for developing centering prayer, you try to meditate on particular things. And he tried a number of things and it wasn't working. Because as an accountant, you, know, you think in categories and numbers. And as a CEO, you think in strategies and plans. Uh, as a powerful, successful person, you see goals that you need to accomplish. He couldn't think that way anymore. His mind naturally wanted to think that way, but rather he had to calm down. And so what he found to be the means by which he could center on God more in his life, to develop this kind of spiritual consciousness, was to meditate upon running water. And it is interesting, if you've ever been to contemplative gardens or something like that, there's always a fountain there, that water has this kind of suggestion to us of the, you know, the well of life, the water of life, of refreshment, of rejuvenation. And so he'd always have some sense of water. They'd go next to rivers, and he would sit there and pray and meditate and develop a deeper sense of God's awareness in life. But he also realized that he needed to bring his life to a conclusion. And so he started this third of, of the three goals, and that is to unwind. He wrote each of his daughters, and I'll, I'll, I'll say I'll choke up thinking about this now, I hadn't thought of this. Before my mother died, she wrote each of us and all her grandchildren these special letters. She knew she was dying, and so she wrote us these wonderful letters. And, uh, of course, I, I was glad I got one, but I was so glad she wrote my children, telling them how meaningful they were to her life. Well, that's what he does. But he also writes all of his friends that he knows. Takes time out, writes a letter, says that he knows that he's dying, but he wanted them to know that uh, their lives were important. And he uh, realized also that what enables a person to approach their life with some meaning and wisdom to it is a belief in God, that there is a greater purpose to our lives, that finitude, death, doesn't conclude the plans that have worked way, their way through us, but also the circle of family and friends, how meaningful that can be as a person approaches their death. Uh, I read a review the other day of a book that uh, is also people's kind of final words. And uh, there's a chapter there about a woman named Susan Sontag, S-O-N-T-A-G. Very, very influential, famous person. Wrote some pretty significant book. I mean, academics quote her all the time. They probably have seminars and maybe even some people write dissertations on her work. Uh, she was a a very sort of political leader, uh, a cause person, always sort of championed some sort of social cause, and took some very, very controversial positions. And uh, in fact, she, uh, one of the most controversial things that she said is that what happened after September the 11th was, uh, you know, people were assessing why do these people hate us so much well, that they would, you know, 
commit such atrocities as that, and she blamed America for that. Uh, so she uh, has a kind of a uh, notorious reputation, but she was an incredibly opinionated person. In any way, uh, she dies, and uh, the physician who's talking to her as she's dying said, well, you need to be prepared for your disease. And she says, I'm going to lick this disease. I'm going to overcome this disease. I've overcome everything else in my life. And he said, well, no, you, you probably need to uh, get right with God or whatever spirituality she has, uh, whatever spirituality you have, because your time is limited. And she said, oh, I, I don't believe in God. I have no spirituality. And then the doctor said, well, you, you better get right with your family and with your friends. And she says, I have no friends. She died utterly alone. And I can imagine the horror and the misery that she might have felt there, but that all that I've done, I don't know how she felt, but it would seem that, I mean, if you're going to reject God, if you're going to reject your friends, she had her son, uh, she wouldn't even talk to her son uh, when she was dying. Um, if you're going to do all that, how are you going to face the fact that maybe your life, in fact, has been insignificant? Well, what he realizes, though, O'Kelly, is that with his family around him, these people whom he loves and who loved him deeply, and who he now has helped bring to a close, his life and their life, he's not insignificant. He, death is not going to take away his significance. And I would think probably that would be one of the most terrible things that a person could ever realize, that when they are facing their death, that maybe my life was insignificant after all. But he learns, though, that it's not. And what he learns, in fact, is that he is... Uh, experiencing eternity breaking its way into his own life. And I want to read the last things that he says here. Oh, a hospice doctor comes uh, to them the last days of his life, and he talks about what's called the terminal restlessness or end-stage restlessness, that a lot of people just before they die have something going on physiologically with their brain or maybe deeply with their emotions and they become very agitated and restless and sometimes say very cruel things to people. Uh, and so the physician was telling his wife, Corinne, be ready for this. He, he may start saying things that you wish he wouldn't say at such a, such a you know, sensitive moment as this. But he doesn't have that though. In fact, he says some very kind and mystical things in his last conscious moments. And she believes that the reason why he didn't experience this, this agitated state is because he had made peace with his family, he had made peace with his friends, he did not have agitation in his soul. He was right with God, and hence he was right with his death. But, here's what he says. One visitor that afternoon asked Gene if he felt peaceful. Yes, he said. The visitor asked him if he felt pain. No, he said. Gene said he felt no pain in his brain, no pain from lack of food and water, nor was he feeling fear. Is this the transition, the visitor asked? Yes, said Gene. Are you in a good place? I'm in a great place, he said. All his life, Gene had only ever said things he meant. And that was not changing now. If anything, he felt things more deeply than ever before. After a long moment of silence, Gene said, I feel supported on the other side.
Well, all that he had learned in his life, the energy that he had developed, the strength that he had garnered from being a CEO, an accountant, a successful person, he has now shifted into this spiritual realm, love of family, the love of friends, the love of God. And this gives him this wisdom to be able to accept his own mortality. And he dies there, September the 10th, uh, 2005. Uh, the title of the book, Chasing Daylight, was a theme that he and his wife developed uh, when they went through this. They were not going to chase darkness. They were not going to let darkness overcome their life. They were going to still chase the daylight even through this experience. It's a moving account. I have to admit, I teared up a number of times, especially when he was talking with his daughters and the friends who came to see him. And I think there's something to be learned from that. Just like you said, there are two things that enable us to face this end in this way. Our belief in God and our family, our friends, to deepen and secure those things, deepen our souls, deepen our own consciousness, help us to center even more so, so that we can see the presence of God even in that moment in which we think there won't be any more presence. And that's our death. All right, my time is well, it's actually up, but anybody have a comment or a question? Anything you want to add to this? Yes, Ed? Would you say that uh, the end of life, belief in God, also requires that we feel the harmony with God? Right. To go in peace. You know, there's one thing I wish we did. Uh, you know, I was, I'm a Baptist, I, but I belong to all churches. I, I just go to a Baptist church, <laughs> um, and I go here as well, is that I wish we had what the Roman Catholics and the Orthodox do is the, the last rite. I kind of like that idea. Have any of you ever witnessed the, a last rite? When a person is dying, the priest will come, and there's a special blessing given to a person who dies. And sometimes communion is given to the dying person if they can do it. But there's a special prayer that is given to the dying person that prepares them as they face their death. That is, even in this moment, that will take away everything you've ever done. Everything that you've ever done. Nonetheless, you face it with prayer. Is it a sacrament? In Roman Catholicism, it's a sacrament. It is? Okay. Well, I like the idea of it being a sacrament. Just that we took communion this... Yeah. Great. Anyone else? Well, thank you. I, uh, as always, very appreciative of this honor and opportunity. Uh, Gil, thank you for asking yes, me. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Why don't we stand and I'll dismiss us in prayer. Our God of hope, our God of life, we appeal to thee that thy blessings will be upon us, so that in us we will be uh, that we all will be a lens towards thee so that our lives may in fact reflect that great gift of life that you give us. And this I pray. Amen. Amen.